started now, so I'll do the introduction and then I'll let you guys take over. Okay. Okay, so I just want to welcome everyone today to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series. Today marks our 11th year of offering colloquium. And uh, we've been bringing speakers in to present on a variety of topics that are related to biotechnology and their place within societal changes. Uh, my name is Don Rodriguez Ward, and I will be co-instructing this semester with Jen Bonsigar. You can see her. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about colloquium this semester, and then I will give it away to our, our first presenters of the semester. So we meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 here at Poe. And, uh, 202, and we will be holding collo colloquium in person for this semester for all registered students and for all GES-affiliated faculty. Uh, we will also be live streaming uh, with Zoom for those that can only join us uh, virtually. And just as a reminder, this is also open to the public online, so we welcome um, everyone to join us online as well. Uh, these sessions are recorded and they will always be uploaded on the GES website the same week. And you can also, uh, they're also available as podcasts. Uh, next week's presenter will be virtual. We have uh, Amy Huang from the Good Foods Institute and her presentation is called The Quest to Reimagine Meat. And she'll be talking about alternative protein research. And we do also have an update uh, about the GES write-in. It's happening every Tuesday from 10 to 11.30, and it will be at the DH Hill Library as well as virtual, if you prefer. And so we had that rotating on our loop. And again, if you have any questions, comments, any updates you'd like us to include uh, in our weekly <coughs> meetings, please let Jen or I know. And if you have any speaker suggestions or any sort of suggestions for colloquium, our ears are open, so we always welcome uh, emails from, from the public and students and faculty. And so today we're going to have a presentation called Perspectives of Eastern North Carolina Farmers and the Impacts of Biotechnology. And it's going to be presented by the Ag Biofuse PhD Research Traineeship. And so the Ag Biofuse, as most of you know, stands for Agricultural Biotechnology in our Evolving Food, Energy, and Water Systems. And this is the second cohort that started in 2020. And it's an amazing group of PhD candidates from different disciplinary backgrounds. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, cohort two, uh, the, um, the presenter, first presenter, Dana Mubisa. And thank you guys for being our first presenters of the semester. Thank you, Dawn. Uh, thank you, Dawn. And this is Advertis Cohort 2. I'm Dana Mugisa. I'm originally from Uganda, and I'm in the Biological and Ag Engineering Department. So I'd like to thank you all that have made it in person, and for those that are Zooming in um, online. And I'd like to acknowledge three of our members that have not been able to make it in person due to a conflict um, in classes. However, um, whatever you're going to listen to today was done as a group, and they'll be well represented. So we are excited to share with you what we learned over the summer trip um, as regards the perspectives of Eastern North Carolina farmers and the impact of biotechnology in their activities. So before we go so deep into this uh, presentation, one thing we'd like you to have at the back of your minds is the themes that we reflected on after this trip. So we aggregated our reflections into three different themes and that is the land and power, and biotech, and decision-making. Um, I say this because it's going to appear a number of times, and my colleagues will 
explain more about that. And we thought it would be very important to just share with you um, a little bit of what we did in field and where we went. So we were able to visit 17 places, um, which included farms, um, businesses, research stations, county extension offices, and government offices. And they're all located in the different counties that you see marked with red dots on the map. So while for some of us, farms and um, field sites are part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, we also had some of us that had that had actually never put a foot on funds. Um, so this experience was one of the key experiences we actually experienced while in the while in during the summer field trip. Um, but however, one common experience we all had as a, as a group was the diversity of these different funds. For instance, speaking to um, the size of the funds, the image that you see on your left is an organic farm that is about thirty acres of farmed land, while the image that you see on your right. Um, is the open grounds farm. And this is, it has a farmed acreage of 40,000 acres. So um, the diversity that we continued seeing throughout the different days um, was new to all of us. And I'll, in, in addition to that diversity, I'll speak about the location. Um, so as you, show on the, as, as you saw on the map, um, the, the places that we visited were especially located in different places. Um, so the location, we realized that the location contributed to the different issues that we saw along the way. For instance, we had some farms that we visited that were located on higher altitudes that had sandy soils, and all these are informed which crops they actually grew. Um, so we had an example of a farm that was located on a higher altitude and they had sandy soils, so they did not have any issues with drainage, um, water drainage on their farms. Whereas when we went to other farms that were on lower altitudes, such as in the Blacklands, um, these farmers, every farmer had at least a drainage canal on their farm. They had loamy soils that retained more water, and therefore they had different issues, such as drainage issues on their farms. And it also informed the different crops that they grew. The other thing that we frequently had and listened to from the farmers was the idea of go big or go home. So this, this, we aggregated it into land ownership. So while some farmers were able to have their own pieces of land, um, we found that it was very common for most of the farmers to rent more pieces of land to increase, to increase um, the acreage that they farmed on and therefore need to go back home. Um, we also uh, were able to see farmers that farmed on refugee, on refugee lands uh, as a way of increasing their acreages. Um, so going back to the issue of sizes, size is, is and was an important factor for these farmers and also diverse in a number of ways. So for instance, talking about the smaller farmers and the bigger farmers, um, the size not only influenced the, the quantity, but also the quality of, say, workers that, say, farm managers or farmers wanted in their farms. And I'll speak to the largest farm, which is the 40,000 acreage farm. Um, so the farm manager of this farm shared with us that for him, so he had 20 employees and he said that for him, it's not about the number of workers that he has on the farm, but it's the expertise and the skills that these farmers bring onto, onto his farm um, because he heavily relies on machinery. Um, so this is the diversity of what we saw and that was new to everyone else. And at this point, I'll pass it on to the next speaker. Oh, that's fine. It's the first time I presented this sort of service. 
my name is Sebastian. I'm presenting the next theme is land and power. So as Dana was saying, there was a lot of like, tension between different scales of farming, those that farm the land, and basically how the, the land relates to, the, to those that farm it or make some sort of action within the land. So it not, not only includes farmers, it includes also uh, the government and includes also uh, uh, firms or uh, companies. So it's a very complicated relationship. And we first started uh, with the visit of Tillery. Tillery is a community located in the Halifax County. And Tillery was sort of like, a, it's called like an experiment of resettle of a black uh, farmers in uh, Halifax County. It was uh, first uh, conceived uh, during the New Deal period. And a lot of people that we we visited in, in Tillery were like had fresh, or well, not fresh, but they had still a, a, a lot of memories of those days of, 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 of their jobs, of their families, of the land. And basically, uh, we felt a sense of that they were, they said to us that they were, they felt that they were targeted as a community, not just by the government, but, but uh, also by, uh, by other types of, uh, of, 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 of actors, such as, such as other farmers and maybe uh, other types of communities. So they were very, uh, uh, they had a lot of like, uh, Memories of, of 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 their of their past uh, uh, experiences in this place, and one of the things that they they told us that was really uh, important for us to to show how how this uh, this uh, community lived all these these years and lived through these struggles was uh, this quote that the more things change, the more things remain the same. So they acknowledge change, but there were some things that still remain the same such as segregation, they will, they talk about segregation between black farmers and white farmers. They also talked about this uh, problem of bad credit, uh, these issues with banks, that they will lend their money. And in the 90s, they had like a, a, a very a, a tension with the USDA uh, that was very complicated. And they also had uh, tensions with uh, hog farming and pollution in the community. But they they sort of remained hopeful in the third generation of, of people from Tillery. And they still are hoping for some changes in this in this community. And the next topic is related to uh, the US fishery wildlife in Pocosin and uh, the North Carolina farmers that we visited. It was more like a like a controversy that was not, you know, uh, very uh, in the surface, but it was more like a latent sort of like controversy, because one of the things that was important uh, for us was to to sort of notice, like who sort of like makes decisions and why. So it was like a the farmers for a farmers' point of view was like they are making decisions, but they don't know about farming very well, like the U.S. Uh, wildlife and fishery farmings. Uh, they uh, they said something like they were scared more of the birds rather than the farms. So it that's that sort of tension is sort of like it's still there. Uh, in previous years, we know that they had like a more open conflict, uh, but now they are more like 
they are trying to uh, to overcome that. And one of the most recent things that we found is this compatibility determination for cooperative farming. So this is like a like a public uh, uh, draft document that will be open for discussion to sort of address the the, the possibilities of, of cooperative farming in the in the refuges. So this is like this keep will keep the this will be uh, attention in the future that it needs it needs to to be addressed uh, somehow. Um, the other topic that we were thinking about was uh, this idea of like as Dana was saying the scale of farms and for at the forces of the, of the market. So it doesn't apply just to big farms. It also applies to uh, a small scale farm because they are uh, worried, for example, about like the certificate for organic. So this this is this this tension between the markets, the U.S. market, the European market, uh, North Carolina market, the U.S. market in general, and the consumers. So what roles does uh, the consumer have in in this in this region, right? So as Anna was saying, we were we were identifying this go big or go home mentality, and also this another way of, of seeing things as living sim a simple lifestyle. So there were two sort of like visions of farming that were like uh, contraposed, and uh, it's not that uh, many many farmers located in one or another, but it's sort of like an spectrum to to show how people that do these kinds of things make decisions. That's the next topic. But uh, it's also related to how how power or power dynamics are sort of like uh, influence a lot of the, of the other things that happen in the farms with the producers, with the technology, with resources. Also, the ownership of land is very important because if there's a difference between uh, you know renting land, inheriting land, and different sort of like uh, things that could happen in, inside of land in the land. So. Um, yeah, so the next topic is uh, Ag Biotech, and I will introduce uh, Janine. Thank you. Um, I'm Jabine Ahmad, um, and I am going to talk a lot about agriculture biotechnology, which, as Ag Bio students, is a topic near and dear to us. Farmers um, in eastern North Carolina were no strangers to agricultural biotechnology. We actually saw the use of biotechnology throughout the farms that we visited, with a few small exceptions. And the general consensus was a, a strong support for agricultural biotechnology, especially in terms of genetically engineered crops and other um, sorts of pesticides, fertilizers, and plant hormones that help farmers regulate what was being planted, when it was being planted, how they were dealing with their farming practices, and dealing with things like pests and, and weeds. And one of the things that we, you know, really noticed was that farmers embraced biotechnology. They were very interested in knowing and getting their hands on the latest biotechnology. And much of this knowledge came from extension agents, consultants, or even just word of mouth. And Andrew will talk a little bit more about how these decisions are made, but I wanted to go ahead and introduce that topic. Um, the types of crops that were grown in North Carolina really informed and affected how biotechnology was used. But before I delve further, I want to kind of talk about the kinds of crops that we saw grown in eastern North Carolina. Next slide. So the large amount of crops that we saw grown in eastern North Carolina were for um, basically feed or seed. We didn't 
we didn't visit very many farms where food was grown for human consumption. And this made a difference in terms of agriculture biotechnology that was used. The large crops that were primarily grown in most of the farms that we visited were things like corn, cotton, soybean, and peanuts. But we did visit a few smaller farms where they actually grew um, vegetables or produce that was made for human consumption. And a large amount of these crops, corn, cotton, and soybean in particular, do have genetically engineered um, and genetically modified crop versions. Next slide. Because these were available on the market, you saw a variety of farmers using different types of genetically engineered crops. And we wanted to provide a short list of the different kinds of traits that were present in these crops. Largely, most of these crops either addressed weeds and so had herbicide type genes in them, or they addressed pests. And so they had um, some side of protein, like either the BT toxin or something else to deal with pests. And because most of these crops um, had these varieties, one of the things we saw was that our farmers in Eastern North Carolina that we spoke to really took their responsibility as what we like to think of as stewards of biotechnology. Um, and seriously, uh, they wanted to make sure that this technology is preserved for the future because they rely so heavily on it. As Sebastian mentioned, a lot of the farms were starting to scale up larger and larger, and that was only possible because they had access to biotechnology and other types of technology like farm equipment that would allow them to be able to farm more acres, grow more, and get better crop yields, um, something that would be more difficult for them to do if they didn't have access to genetically engineered crops. And some of the farmers that we spoke to, you know, whenever possible, they tried to use this, they tried to keep up to date, and they tried to diversify the types of genetically engineered crops they had for concern that they wouldn't create um, some sort of resistance or affect the technology so that they wasn't possible to use it in the future. And interestingly enough, even um, the organic farmer that we spoke to had mentioned that a lot of his farming practices rely on conventional farming and genetically engineered crops. For example, he used chicken litter to help fertilize his crops, but that chicken litter came from farms where they were fed genetically engineered grain. Um, so it's interesting to see the connections between biotechnology, even in places where you wouldn't expect to see um, you know, genetically engineered crops. It, it also makes a huge difference in agriculture, both in good ways and bad ways. Um, it allows for larger scale up, but also there are concerns about resistance um, and not being careful enough with how you are growing and adhering to the way that you want to use biotechnology. For example, there was some controversy about whether or not refuge was important. Some farmers absolutely maintain refuge and somewhat beyond that. Um, we mentioned a couple of different um, farmers where they grew even more than the recommended amount of refuge corn. And, and what's meant by that is refuge is non-genetically uh, engineered uh, crops that they grow in order to create a place for insects um, to be able to feast on those without affecting um, the crops that they are growing that are genetically engineered. So we wanted to also then just kind of give you, next slide please, um, some insight on the thoughts that came out from our conversations with farmers, extension agents, um, all sorts of different people that we met throughout our trip about genetically engineered crops. And a large amount of this really came down to, you know, practices. Genetic engineering really allowed them to bring flexibility. It allowed them to scale up um, and, uh, and this concern about needing to protect themselves wanting to make sure that this technology is available in the future and wanting to really make sure that they follow what they need to do 
um, in order to protect it. Now, this might not necessarily be as common throughout North Carolina, but we did see this sentiment um, among the farmers that we spoke to about really wanting to preserve this technology. And with that, um, I'm going to leave it off to Andrew, who will talk about decision making. Thanks, Jabeen. Okay, so my name is Andrew, and I'll be talking to you about our third theme, decision making. You can see us here in a field, gain some advice from one of the extension agents about how to get the most yield out of your corn. We'll talk more about that in one of our three areas we talk about, um, which is so we're talking about ma managing labor, sources of advice or expertise that farmers relied on. And again, scale of farming, because this is so important to everything that farmers are doing now. So first onto labor, there are a number of different things. We had discussions of labor with practically every farmer we talked to. One of the things that came up the most often was that their need for labor varied very often. So it's dependent upon the season. You need like somebody works 70, 80 hours a couple weeks out of the year when you're harvesting. But we, for example, talked with one farmer manager who was saying that He's struggling to find like 40 hours a week for his people when they're just laying their crops grow and such. It's very much seasonal dependent on when they need their labor, which makes it a bit harder than to have labor when you need it the most. We need those people for 70, 80 hours, just a couple weeks out of the year. The other thing, as you've been hearing about before, is this need for skilled and reliable people to operate your very expensive equipment that you either bought or you loan from like John Deere. You don't, many people talked about trying to find someone that they could trust to get on a tractor and not either mess up the crops or mess up the tractor themselves because either way that's going to cost them a lot of money and many of them talked about you're on a mar you're on this like thin margin and someone messes up your equipment you're screwed it's going to be very hard to recover from that another thing we talked about with a number of different farmers was this idea of importing labor through h2a where they were having migrants only from mexico come in and weed for them or help with harvest time when they're gathering like produce and going on trucks and such. And we heard concerns both about the idea of practicality, managing like the additional paperwork, ensuring these people have housing, the expenses that come with all this different management processes that they have to do. And also this concern about like, should I be employing people coming from Mexico who aren't from my local area when I'd rather be having local people working at my operation? In many cases, people talked about they want to be a place that members of the community can come to and work at and make a living. That's where they would prefer to happen, but they shared that it was a struggle to find those locals that could work for them. And then alongside this discussion of labor was this um, issue sometimes of health insurance, where people <laughs> talked about, in one case, we had a farm manager shared that his owner had the perspective of, if I can't pay for the health insurance for my people, then I can't run my business. But in many cases, that wasn't an option for growers. They couldn't provide health insurance to all their employees or even for themselves at times. And they had to do different workarounds and such just to figure out how am I going to uh, get health insurance for myself, like working with the postal office for a number of years so I can get federal health insurance that way, for example. And when we asked people, well, why are you experiencing these labor shortages that they commonly talked about, there was a couple of different causes that they gave us. For example, they talked about this idea of laziness or that being a farmer is really hard work. Like I said, if you're working like 80 hours sometime out of the year, not everybody's going to be willing to do that every day on end for part of the year. And so they share that they, like we had one person organic, or we had people come in who wanted to get a hand at farming for a little bit. 
And then they would leave a couple of weeks later because they realized it's not for them. It was hard to find people who wanted to stay on the job for very long. We also had this idea of, as I mentioned, you're working a lot of hours part of the year and then struggling to find hours the rest of the year. This idea of inconsistent hours. And it's really hard to convince people to want to come and work for you when they're not sure when they'll be working and that they'll have this consistent wage year round that they'd rather have. This was another issue some of them shared uh, when trying to find labor. And then lastly, some of them talked about the issue of competing with COVID-19 and the unemployment benefits people were getting, how they couldn't provide the same level of wage as you could get from a COVID-19 check. So they shared that the sentiment that people were staying at home and collecting checks instead of working because why well, go out and work and be paid less when I could get a check. And in many cases, people talk about that they can't like pay that much, like it'd be too hard for them to do that. So moving on to the next section, we talk about our sources of advice or expertise. So in this case, we have a picture of an NC State Extension agent who could be one source of advice for growers, but you can also have consultants from either like private firms or people coming with your suppliers. So people supplying you like with your pesticides or herbicides could be telling you, for example, yeah, you should spray this much amount on your land to make sure that your liberty link uh, soybeans wherever grow properly and they're not bogged down by weeds. They also talk about um, talking with their other farmers and sometimes that actually being bad advice, how in the past if uh, one person shared, if you saw somebody spraying your sign, you go out and get the same thing and spray yourself. But maybe that's not actually the best idea for your field is a learning experience somebody shared with us. And you would see, um, for example, people giving different advice between these different groups and then farmers have to decide who should I listen to and should I go with? In many cases, like consultants might tell you to spray more to make sure that what they what you want happens versus maybe an extension agent tell you, you go with a little less and be fine still. And another thing we saw was this idea of yield. Everybody talked about in terms of yield when getting advice. You want the most yield possible, but that doesn't necessarily equate with cost effectiveness from growing. Maybe this marginal land doesn't need to worry about it as much yield, do whatever's the most bang for your buck. But that wasn't talked about as often as a, a contention with advice. And lastly, again, scale of farms matters a lot to these growers. So as we mentioned, um, so the larger your farm is getting, the larger your tractors you need. And the larger your tractors need, the greatest need for skilled laborers. And um, like if you rely now on H2A or something, um, chances are those people don't have the kind of expertise to use tractors. And even if they're willing to learn, they don't have time to let somebody try to figure out how to use a tractor. They need somebody who can do it right now. And that was an issue we saw with big farmers where you think they might have more resources to reach out and get the people they need, but they can still struggle to find them. Versus um, sometimes with these smaller farms, they don't need people on big tractors or anything, but they need people willing to come out and weed by hand, depending on how many acres are growing, like our organic grower. He only got three acres. He can do it by hand. He doesn't need like a tractor assigned to do most of his work. And then lastly, we saw this issue of trying to get a discount on your supplies, depending on the size of your business. So the bigger you are, the bigger the bulking buy, so you get a bigger discount usually. But small growers don't have that option. So they have to um, either figure out a way to work together, which can be very hard. Everybody, if you're growing different things, you're not all buying the same thing. It's hard to get a discount, for example. And um, so for small growers, it's much harder for them to get what they need and be competitive with these larger farms. 
And now I'll move it on to Jamie, who's going to close out the presentation. Here you go. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so in summary, the three major themes that we explored and reflected upon are landed power, ag biotech, and decision-making. So these, as you've noticed, uh, when Jabin, Dana, Sebastian, and Andrew were speaking, these are all very interconnected, especially in this heterogeneous agricultural system where you have different players, such as a small farmer that's renting land to a large seed supplier, for example. And so um, I wanted to give an example of how these are also connected. So land and power, so how much land you own, the, uh, whether you um, are renting or owning the land, um, helps provide act, um, provides you uh, better access to ag biotechnology, such as you are able to financially better afford agriculture biotechnology, or you even have permission to use it on the land. And then this also influences your ability to get decision-making by hiring consultants or um, being able to interact more with um, other farmers. And then also, we can think of it another way too. Agricultural biotechnology impacts farmers regarding uh, decision-making because with greater ag biotechnology, farmers can't just rely on traditional knowledge. They need advice from extension agents and consultants regarding new technology. And then ag biotech also helps with land and power because they're able to increase yield, increase land. And so these are all very interconnected. And so in the end, this trip has been tremendously very helpful for us. And we're so grateful for this trip. And we just wanted to add some last pointers of how this trip has helped us. So first of all, um, we learned about the challenges of working in agriculture. It's not a black and white issue. Everything's very nuanced. When we drove for hours, we would see same crops, for example, of corn, soybean, cotton. And we can see why some people, uh, why there are many who argue against um, this emphasis on monoculture. However, we saw that agriculture as a system makes it very difficult to deviate from growing monocultures. When you invest thousands of dollars on combines that collect corn or cotton pickers, it's not easy to suddenly try new crops or try new varieties that may get ready in different times and so you can harvest it at the same time. So um, there's a lot of things that farmers have to grapple with because of uncertainty. However, farmers have dappled with diversity sometimes um, by trying new crops or by engaging more in crop rotation, but it is at a very slow process and it's just hard for them to be able to have financial stability. So that's been an interesting challenge and exciting um, aspect that we're learning. And then also we saw the challenges of applying what we learned in the classroom to real world settings. So in one of our course, we learned a lot about genetic engineering and what goes into these plants, such as um, the how BT crops are formed, how Roundup Ready is formed and why it's used. But just as Jabin was talking about, we learned a lot about how to use this technology responsibly. And when is genetic engineering useful? When is it maybe not useful and that we don't need it, such as for corn? In certain areas, you don't need BT corn because earworms are the issue and they're just a nuisance and really, you can, you, uh, they don't impact your yield significantly. So that's an example. So, and then also this uh, trip informed um, uh, the future of our ag biofuse research. So just our individual research. So for example, I'm in economics. So 
I definitely generated a lot of ideas to help with my agricultural natural resource economics research. And then finally, um, we were able to test the feasibility of one of our proposals. Sorry, running out of time. So we asked two simple questions to every single farmer. What is carbon, have you heard of carbon capture sequestration? And two, have you heard of the carbon market and are you interested in participating in it? So carbon capture sequestration is basically, in agriculture specifically, it's when you um, capture the carbon in the air, carbon dioxide in the air, and you store it, especially in soil. And so a lot of um, institutions, government, industry, farmers are very interested in transforming agriculture into carbon sinks because we have an issue with rising carbon dioxide levels, which affect climate um, um, temperature increase in our world and also ocean acidification. So farmers in general, they said they're interested in additional revenue and they're interested in helping farms because there is scientific consensus that um, having more carbon in the soil does help with yield and also just the soil biodiversity. However, farmers did have concerns about changing farming practices and the contracts and commitment. These contracts can go from five years to longer. And so they're worried about having to commit to a certain practice and that will prevent them from actually being able to adjust to the circumstances that they are facing. So for example, we met someone who is engaging in uh, farming practices that are that help with carbon capture sequestration, like no tilling, but he's unwilling to, he's hesitant of participating because he's not sure if he needs to change it up in the future. So um, in the end, uh, we want to thank you all for making this trip a great experience. And uh, these are all the names of people we're very grateful for. Thank you so much. Um, so you can look at it. Um, and then we are open for questions. <laughs> uh, we have some questions in the chat. Do you um, maybe want to pull it up? I don't know. Hold on. I don't think the same is there. While we're doing that, Eli has his hand raised. Yeah. Hi. Uh, great job. I was really impressed that you were able to integrate your cohort project ideas with your field experiment, but I had a, a couple follow-ups for what you just talked about. So uh, first question was, if you could elaborate any further on the things you discussed about contract concerns with carbon capture. Um, and the second was if you had spoken specifically about initiatives to genetically engineered plants, like the salt ideal plants, to increase the rate of carbon capture. Um, um, I can answer that. So for contracts, basically, uh, for carbon capture sequestration to be effective, you need to have farmers engage in certain practices for a long period of time. And I, I forgot to mention this during the presentation, so I'm sure you guys are confused. But uh, some of the practices include no-tilling, using cover crops, and having uh, diverse crops or, and then crop rotations. So the whole point of this is to store carbon dioxide in the soil for a really long time. So when you, not, when you don't till um, for several years and then suddenly you till again, then the uh, carbon dioxide will be released. So that's why a lot of these companies like um, Indigo Ag and Nori, they come in as middlemen and basically they say, hey, farmers, um, I'm going to uh, companies want to pay you to do these kind of farming practices 
to sequester carbon in the soil. And so we want you to sign, for example, a five-year contract that you will keep doing these practices so that you will get the money for um, the carbon you store. Does that, that, does that answer your first question? Um, in, in general, I think uh, if any, I guess I'll look forward to any uh, further uh, information you, you get out of it if you go that way for your project. I can add a little bit to it, Eli. For example, we talked to one person who knew about Indigo Ag, as Jamie mentioned, and he shared um, his concerns about who am I contracting with? Am I contracting with Indigo Ag, who is going to take a lot of the profits and I get barely anything? Or can I have some kind of more direct contract with like the person who's polluting and wants permits for carbon capture? And I can make more money that way. That was a concern that one grower shared who had a it seemed like he had looked into it a bit compared to other farmers who hadn't considered it yet. And I'll also add, Eli, we did this very informally. So we didn't have like a set list of questions. It was just something that we asked. Um, so we didn't go into details and a lot of our farmers hadn't really heard about it. So we had to also kind of explain a little bit about what we were talking about when we mentioned carbon um, sequestration and capture and the carbon market. So we didn't really delve that deeply into this question about contracts or going into the details about it. And for your second question, yes, we are aware of the Salk Institute where uh, we've been looking into the plants that are uh, being genetically engineered specifically for carbon, carbon capture sequestration. And that's why we were asking these kind of questions to farmers. All right. Okay. Um, the next question. We're two from Ruben. Yeah, Ruben has two questions. The okay. first is, um, are folks from tillery into no-till farming? So are folks from tillery into no-till farming? Um, as far as I know, just um, to add. It was a joke. Uh, <laughs> that, that, oh, was a joke. oh, that was a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay I get it now. Okay, and then and then I think a serious question is asking. Uh, okay, uh, did you get the chance of talking with farm workers while you were? Um, no, we as far as I know, we didn't really get to talk to farm workers that much. If you mean, um, so we talked to like managers, we talked to the owners. Occasionally, we I think we talked to like one other worker who's working under a manager at one point, two two at one point at different farms. But we didn't, for example, really get to talk to like people involved with the migrant labor area. That was something that we tried to do. We tried to meet with some of the leaders in that area, but we weren't able to meet with them. I think to add to that, what was it, what was interesting? What was interesting is that for at least the small sized farms, the owners were actually the workers. Um, those, for example, an organic farm that had two two workers. That is. As it, I think yeah. it was the father and the daughter. So we talked to some workers who are the owners, but not farm workers, migrant or Yeah, and also got to that some small farmers. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, some farm work, small farm workers uh, had a closer relationship with, uh, well, some small farm owner had a closer relationship with their workers. Some of them even called them like, uh, they know more about them personally, others don't. But I think the relationship as the, as the, as the scale of the farm grows, the distance between uh, 
the manager and the workers is also increased. So it's like sort of like a, you know, they don't know too much about them personally. It's more like a sort of like a different type of relationship. Mm -hmm. You have a question about, um, like, in terms of the decision making, the information gathering, or you know, things like the work that's needed. You mentioned um, hiring workers who are not local, importing labor, things like. Is is a large part of that done at individual farmer level, or is are there like farmers associations that kind of do like you know gathering information about carbon capture or how to handle importing labor? Is that like is there any collective that? Does okay. the work? Is it all? Um, in terms of, so we didn't ask much about collectives, and you all can add anything you can think of. Um, um, so I had, I had many layers to your question. Um, I think the first was if there are groups. Did you say that if there are groups um, that make decisions for workers? Was that your first question? Yeah, I'm just trying to see, like you know, if all of these farms are kind of on their own. Yeah, I know that there's a farmers lobby and things like that, but. In terms of getting information about carbon capture, no-tilling methods, or trying to figure out how to do uh, labor importation, you mentioned that you know people are concerned about paperwork. Okay. Is there anybody um, helping them, or is they are they all on their own? I'll jump on the one of uh, I'll, I'll jump on the jumping board. Yeah, the one of labor importation. Um, so we spoke to this farmer that uses H two workers, and he says there is a middle. There's kind of like a middleman. So I don't know if it's a company or what it is, but there's this gentleman that owns these, you know, or he brings them in from Mexico and does all the paperwork for this particular farmer. So they kind of have that chain of someone um, takes on the responsibility of bringing in the, the workers and hands them over to this person and does all the kinds of paperwork. And I'll let Japin jump on, um, on any other aspects of that. There is a large variability from what we saw, and it really depended on the type of farm and the scale of farm. So some of the larger farms like that we went to, they actually had on staff people that would help them with making decisions. So they would actually have someone who would go out and check their soil. Some of the smaller ones relied heavily on extension agents and crop consultants, and that's where they got their information from. But there was also a lot of informal just talking to your neighbors. A lot of the farmers knew each other really well and were you know, in these communities for long periods of time. So it wasn't unusual for them to go and talk to each other, ask, you know, what are you doing? What are you growing? Where are you like seeing things or, or what are your plans and using that information? So I, I think there's a lot of variability. I wouldn't say it was just one source or one place, um, but it just depends on what you were comfortable with. A lot of this was based on relationships. So if you had a good extension agent that you had a long history with, that's the person you rely on. If you have good relationships with your neighbors, you talk to them more often. There's a follow-up question from Eli in the chat. Okay. Uh, did owner, this is to the previous question, I think, uh, and somewhat this, did owner workers show more sympathy towards labor concerns than owner managers? Owner. Did what? Did so, owner so workers. The people who own the farm but also work the farm, did they, were they more sympathetic toward labor concerns than people who own the farm and managed workers? It's hard for us to say that. Um, uh, I, would but say I would say that. at least in one instance, the owner um, who wasn't a worker showed a lot of sympathy. Like it was very important for him that all of his workers had healthcare insurance. And one of the things he had mentioned was that if I can't provide healthcare, then I have no business farming. Yeah, uh, what I remember is that 
just one case that the, the, the farmer owner had like a, he knew the person, like he even recommended to other, you know, places. So it seems like a, like a mentor, like an, a student sort of type of relationship. Uh, but it's just one case of like many cases. Uh, yeah. I don't know if like, yeah. I would say as it as they became more removed, it did seem like there was less of that personal connection or care for. So it's hard to say with the few instances of people we talked to about it. I would say you need to talk to more people to confirm that it's actually like that. And for who specifically it's like that, what separates them. All right, we have many questions. Uh start with you, Todd. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I'm curious if you got any sense. You mentioned a bunch of times about like land ownership, and that you heard a lot about like go big or kind of go home or probably collapse. So I'm curious if you did you get a sense of is there competition now of land grabs in terms of like if everyone's trying to get big, but you mentioned that people are renting a lot of this space. Like, how do you have a sense of how that's going to work? And then, particularly in comparison to when you visited Tillery, which were smaller farms, do you, do you get a sense that there is worry about this sort of race to get bigger from farms or not? Um, yeah, I would definitely say it, it seemed competitive at times. Like, we talked to one farmer who was a refuge farmer. He talked about the refuge land isn't much of his operation, it's not the best land because of the like Ricardo says, to follow up to and such, but he's not going to give it up because he doesn't want his competitors to have it, for example. Um, it was very rare when we heard people not want to get bigger. We had, I remember I talked to one guy, he said he didn't want to go higher than like a thousand acres because he just wanted himself and his like, I think uncle or his father or something, just him, those two work in the land, nobody else. And that seemed very rare to say that I have some definite line that I want to stop at. Um, if anybody else wants to add in. Yeah, I, I just want to add that uh, it's, what, I, what I sense is more, more like they were more concerned of managing the scale that they have acquired over the years rather than just expanding, expanding, because they were more like, you know, dealing with the uncertainties, technology, resources, and everything. And um, yeah, so that, that sort of like go be whole home, I think it was like when there was time when they were growing rather than now they were trying to keep or become sustainable at some point. So that's right, sort of like what I sense of, of them. Like they were more concerned about like keeping up what, what they have, you know, acquired. All right, we'll keep going around there. Jason? Um, so at, here on campus, when we talk about agricultural biotechnology, we tend to jump into conversations about new gene editing technologies and gene drives and basically emerging technologies that are past the first generation GMOs um, that you were talking about. Did anybody that you inter interacted with talk about these newer technologies as something that they were paying attention to or concerned about or seeing as hopeful? Or were, were all the conversations really about this first generation of, of GMOs? They were really about first generation GMOs, but like I would say more like and sometimes upgrades of the first generation GMOs. So like instead of people just using Roundup Ready, they use Dicamba or they focus or they um, there's a lot of seeds with stacked traits now. So you can have it be BT and Roundup Ready, for example. Um, but we did have situations where farmers talked about innovative things such as like pro uh, to be, you know, more right. The probiotic. 
Um, but yeah, my so uh, using biologics, I guess some people called it that way, but using microbes, for example, to help improve soil quality or to deal with plant growth and development or even pests and things. Um, I mean, it, it depends on how you define what agriculture biotechnology is. It doesn't quite fit into the direction of gene drives, but it certainly is a tool um, that can be used. And, and I think to add to that, you know, a lot, there were farmers that were very interested in, in keeping up to date. They relied heavily on crop consultants and extension agents. So if one of those folks in one of those sectors had learned about a technology and felt like that was an important thing to perhaps add to a farm or to consider, um, you know, the farmer, they established such strong relationships with these people that they're willing to consider it. Um, but it really comes down to who's telling them and who's introducing the technology to them. So they don't. Hi. Um, so I wanted to see if you could expand a little on something you said towards the end um, with uh, the discounts for larger farms and that it was hard for small farms to band together. And I was curious what you meant by banding together. Like, would that be sort of like collective buying of, you know, products or uh, more like association cooperative kind of thing and what did you see with the sense of interest or you know dis distrust of that kind of thing Okay, um, I can get started. So in that case, um, so we didn't talk to many small farmers and that's part of the problem. There's not many of them left. We talk, uh, most people there around, I wanna say at least a thousand acres at minimum, if not more. We only talked to like two people that were below that, I wanna say. Um, so in many cases, there's not a lot of people for you to work with to begin with. So there's not, we didn't see anything about like associations existing in the area and such, but we did hear about associations associations existing in other parts of the country. That's how like small organic growers would buy all their inputs together, their seeds or whatever, to keep themselves going. In this area, the most they could do was informal agreements between maybe one or two growers. Like one guy shared, he's doing like a hundred slain acres and he works with like a supplier, the supplier offered to buy his product with his. So they bought together. That was a very informal agreement. There's no guarantee that that's going to continue on and on. And so it, it's very much this extra, like, variability of being lucky that somebody's going to want to work with you this year to buy something with you, assuming you both need the same thing to begin with. We, we did uh, see yes. one on the other side of it. So, like, in terms of one's crops were harvested. So there was at least one farmer that we spoke to um, that had actually kind of collected his neighbors together to create a cotton gin um, and to ensure that a bunch of them together would have stronger ability to be able to control like the prices that they received for their cotton and how they were able to process it. Um, and so that was at least one instance, but it's on the, the other end of, of agricultural practice rather than sort of buying the seed and everything together. And I think that was also pretty rare because that farmer, you know, he was, he may want to consider himself a small farmer, but he was a very large scale farmer. Yes. So it's been really interesting hearing about your experiences on the farm and what the farmers are doing. Um, but I'm interested to hear what your personal experiences were from this trip. Did you have any revelations from working in this interdisciplinary group? Um, so just more reflective on your experience during the week. 
uh, at least for me, it was like always comparing what happens here in the U.S. with Latin America. So the contrast between, you know, one guy telling you, like, I'm going to fall to, for an airplane to spray something, you know, because I need to keep the schedule, you know. That doesn't happen in Latin America by far, you know. So that the scale of, like, and also uh, of farming, but also, like, the relationship with the people with the land here is more, it's, like, different. Um, I, I don't know, it's, like... For me, that was like always comparing, you know, that's, that was my own experience. I don't know if so. I'll jump in. Yeah. So mine was very similar to Sebastian's comparison, uh, but I'd like to add in the idea of interdisciplinarity. So reflecting on that, I, I thought it was very helpful. You know, we could all approach, the, maybe in groups, like in groups of four, we'd just approach one person and all of us would just ask different questions. Uh, maybe a question that I would have never thought about. And I kept on bringing this example of in questions of like insurance. Are the farmers insured? Those would not like pop into my head. Uh, my default questions would be like, how are they handling their water issues? You know, so the interdisciplinarity helped to gather more information on that. Mm -hmm. And after that, the questions too would be more specific if based on their groups. Yeah, like Dana had very specific questions about drainage that I would never think to ask about in my group with her. I would just ask like, so you got some ditches or not? That, that'd be the extent of my knowledge of drainage, for example. And we really saw is that everybody brought in, like I was saying, these different perspectives that really create this more cohesive view or expansive view of the person we're engaging with and the different stories we're hearing in between talking to these people. Yeah, they, they spoke basically what was on my mind. I mean, during the trip, I found myself asking questions I never would have thought I'd ask. I, I usually focus more on economic-based questions, but I was asking questions about their weed control. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything about weeds before, but suddenly I got so interested in how they manage weeds and pests. And I realized that that is actually also very important with economics. If you understand the science, what, how to responsibly use it and how you can use economic incentives to influence people's decisions. So... That's how I learned. How about you, Javine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think one of the interesting things, too, is actually, Jamie, you did this quite a bit. You would ask them more about their personal lives, um, which was always super fascinating <laughs> when, we were, when we were visiting different farmers. A lot of us would focus on more of the technical questions about, you know, their practices and things. And Jamie would jump in with questions like, who do you hang out with <laughs> in your day? Um, which actually yielded some really interesting responses and got us a better sense of the community in a lot of Eastern North Carolina and how these farmers interact with each other. So, you know, it wasn't a question that I would have necessarily asked, but it actually gave us a lot of insight onto um, the kinds of, of communities that develop in these areas and how they interact with each other. And just, you know, it leads to that decision-making aspect. Any final questions? There are a couple of small ones in the chat. Okay. Um, from Eli, he's very good with questions. <laughs> of course, thanks, Eli. <laughs> um, one is, do you know if H2A farm workers return to the same farm every year? Um, as far as I know, we weren't able to find out about that, whether or not they came to the same farm or not. It looks like they don't. Yeah. The farmers, a lot of times, they express concern about they want consistent workers who who knows how to use their machinery, and so that's why they're very hesitant in using H two A. But they feel like they need to now. So I want to ask you a big question, which is, 
did any were any of you inspired to think about a research project that you could pursue that would actually serve the people that you were interacting with? Um, and what would that be? Yes, for me. Yes, for me. Do you want to go first? You or? go first. Okay, so my inspiration was from talking with the people at Tilray was engaging with them. They had some very interesting, so my background is like responsible innovation now. And they had some interesting uh, quotes I pulled from them, like one person told us to change our research. And then they got me thinking afterwards, what do would they like it to be instead? And they're telling us to change our research. Or they told us, stop making things that are killing us. And that is a really visceral response to respond to think about innovation and technology that I haven't really experienced engaging with our people. And so I thought about what's the way maybe I could work in a research proposal, like engage with and work with the people of Tilray and really ideally like pay them for their knowledge as like participants in workshops or surveys and such. I was thinking uh, about these uh, consultants because it came up, you know, so many times. So I think uh, maybe a type of like, I don't know, project with consultants and also extensions, extension workers, you know, the amount of work they do, the amount of places they go, people they know, it's very interesting. So I, I don't know, maybe, and they are still working in some like community engagement uh, practices. So a project like that would be very, very interesting because they, they have like a lot of knowledge, uh, a huge, I, I hugely respect like how, like what they do. It's amazing what they do. I'm gonna jump in because we're out of time. Oh, but um, I'm sure people are interested in the room can stay and chat if you still have the desire, but I need to be respectful of everyone's. Thank you. So thank, thank you, you all for coming. Thank you. Amy, you want to continue? Yeah, for me, um, I've been very fascinated with the Pocosin drainage issue. That, that's been really interesting to me, especially because uh, I've been doing a lot of research regarding water markets where the issue is water scarcity. And so a lot of time, um, um, and so these farm, uh, because there, so basically a lot of times water markets arise from litigations. So some farmer upstream keeps using too much water. So farmers downstream can't use that much water. And so they basically allocate rice and then trade with each other. And I'm just so fascinated with the Pocosin issue because this is not a lack of water now. This is an excess of water. You have um, the fish and wildlife. They, um, because of the way they set it up, they're accumulating so much water and it's causing flooding in the um, lower farmers. And so I'm just fascinated to see if there's any way to use economics to help alleviate that um uh I don't, I, there's no scarcity in here i guess maybe scarcity of uh or it's not even scarcity now like this is like very different I, i'm trying to grab my heads around it but like the excess of water this time <laughs> so that's what i've been fascinated about would you say it's a negative externality it's definitely a negative externality um and I, I just wonder how, for example, how would a market system uh, work with this situation of flooding? So I'm, I'm still just thinking it out in my head. So, um, you? Yeah, so for me, it informed um, one of the research questions that I wanted to answer. So I've been looking at, I've been thinking of looking at the marginal economic benefit of these different trades. Um, alongside water management, alongside say, drainage and irrigation. So the studies that I've looked at, you know, the economics of drainage and irrigation, 
But so I now wanted to bring in you know, genetics, genetic engineering, look at the marginal economic benefits uh, of these traits. So what this informed, in my mind, I was actually already looking at literature, um, where, and I, I wanted to zero down on drought tolerance. But what this trip informed me is, so drought tolerance is actually not an important trait to the people in eastern North Carolina, or you know, most of North Carolina. So I am changing that to looking at the, the common traits, which are um, herbicide-resistant crops, um, herbicide resistance, and, and insect resistance. That's how the trip informed what I want to do. Oh, I also have one more too. So, uh, sorry. Um, I so after this field trip, I had to go to Asheville right away, <laughs> and I went to an economics conference, and it was really interesting because um, when we talked about carbon capture sequestration, sequestration, a lot of farmers expressed concern over contracts. There, because for carbon capture sequestration to be effective, you need the farmers to commit to these practices for a really long time. So, long contracts are essential. But I just heard a presenter talk about the how short-term contracts could still be helpful because it could still delay actions. And it kind of takes away some risks from farmers and put it more towards those who are giving the contracts too. So that was really fascinating. Like, how can we, like, if farmers want to engage in carbon markets, how do we, like, what are some ways to lessen their risks of financial loss, you know? So it is, yeah, that's also something I thought about. Thank you. You can go on forever. <laughs> Thank you.